Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, today's topic is simple harmonic motion. This is basically chapter 13. So the homework on chapter 13 is due this week, and today is the only lecture we have on it. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time going over the test, but I, I will touch on it. And then we'll talk about various properties of simple harmonic motion, um, more generally properties of oscillations. And uh, we'll do a couple examples. Okay, so that's what the scores look like. There were kind of two distributions. There was uh, sort of half the students who had a distribution in the A's and B's, and then some that didn't do as well. So going through it, um, I think part one was pretty straightforward. Um, I'll point out question number six we use the shell theorem for. The shell theorem basically told us that inside the Earth, the, uh, gravita the effect of gravitational field is reduced because you don't feel the effect of the mass that's further up towards the surface. Um, so that was, that was the one that stood out as something that people had trouble with. The solutions are posted online. I posted them um, this afternoon. So you can go over the uh, exam in detail. Carrie, you came in. Carlos, why don't you come get your tests so that you can benefit from our discussion. OK, so uh, let's go to problem seven. Problem seven should look familiar. We basically have done it twice before the test, once on the homework and then once in class on Wednesday. This problem was a little bit different in that, um, unlike the problem we did in class, the latter had mass. A lot of people didn't include that. I don't know whether that's because we had just done a problem very similar where the latter didn't have mass. Um, so I was a little bit tougher on people who didn't include the mass of the latter just because you were solving a problem that I'd done on the board two days earlier. Um, the key here is this is an equilibrium situation. And so the sum of the forces should equal 0, and the sum of the torques should equal 0. If you wrote down those two equations, sum of the forces equals 0, sum of the torques equals 0, uh, that was 4 points. You should have gotten 4 points for that. Um, evaluating what those forces were and what those torques were correctly would get you another eight points. Okay, so when you say that the sum of the torques equals zero, you then have to go up and add up all the individual torques that are acting on the ladder. Um, and that was eight points. And that really was the key here, was properly evaluating what the torques were. Okay, if you weren't able to do that, there was no hope of solving this problem. You got two points for properly recognizing that the maximum force of friction is what you should plug in for F, the force of friction, and that's mu sub s times n. You got two points 
for having an answer that was at least credible, meaning its dimensions were appropriate, and it only referenced terms that had been introduced in the problem. Okay, so you were asked for a distance. If the answer you gave worked out to kilograms, for instance, mass or some other dimension besides distance, you lost two points for that. And then there were, that left about four problems, four points that uh, I gave out for just properly going through the math. Okay, I'm not going to do that problem or talk more about it because we've already done it in class. Okay, problem eight was the yo-yo. So first thing is the uh, free body diagram. And this was a problem that most people did okay on. Um, or at least most people were able to draw a free body diagram, but there are a couple problems that I saw that were very common that uh, I wanted to address. So when we draw a free body diagram, we need to draw the object. In this case, it's our yo-yo. Um, a lot of people have been in the habit of just drawing a point as your object. And that you can get away with when you're doing linear motion. Because in linear motion, all we care about is the motion of the center of mass, which is a point. But when we're considering rotation as well, there's not enough information contained here to figure out what the torques are. So that's not particularly useful. So we want to draw, although it doesn't have to be an exact diagram, it can be sort of a cartoon sketch, we at least want to somehow represent the physical extent of the object. So you had to do that. And then you want to draw the forces from the point where they act. So the mass, the mass of the yo-yo had a total mass of capital M, and acts at the center, the geometric center of the, of the system. And then the tension is coming from the string, which is spooled up a distance 1R away. And that points up. So if you did something like that, that's not good enough, because this line does not indicate a direction. It's not clear whether that string is pushing on the yo-yo or pulling on the yo-yo. So you had to have an arrowhead. Okay. It was not enough to draw this. I want to see it drawn from the point where the force acts. And in the case of the string, that's the point where the string physically touches our yo-yo, which is right there. If you do that, that helps set up the uh, expression for the torques from the various forces. OK, so I kind of took off, I think, one point for not having the arrowheads, a point for not having the forces drawn from their proper locations. And then uh, you basically got one point for properly labeling each of the forces. Part B, what is the moment of inertia for the yo-yo? So the yo-yo is made of three parts, two outer disks and a center axle. So you got one point for recognizing that the total moment of inertia is the sum of the moment of inertia for each part. You got one point for recognizing that for each part, the moment of inertia could be calculated based on the moment of inertia of a cylinder, because that's what we had here. We had three cylinders. So a cylinder or a disk has a moment of inertia of 1 half mr squared. So basically, we got a point for using that formula for each of the three parts. 
And then, of course, you had to plug in the proper value for mass and radius, because they have different amounts of mass and different sizes. Um, and when you evaluate that, you get 11 sixths m little r squared for the total moment of inertia. I didn't, okay, point taken. Um, I didn't encounter any situations like that when I was grading. I haven't graded yours yet because I haven't gotten it yet. So my grading scheme is all based on what I would think students would do, but sometimes when I encounter a problem like that, I try to adjust and grade accordingly. Okay, so assuming that it was solid, and I probably should have written that in the test, um, that's how you'd evaluate the moment of inertia. If you made other assumptions, anytime you make assumptions, it's important to state them. And to the best of my ability, I'll try to grade you based on the assumptions that you made. Okay. Um, part C, the tension in the string. We want to find the tension in the string. Um, if you said the tension equals mg, you didn't get any points for that. If the tension equaled mg, the yo-yo would not fall. If you let go of the yo-yo, you hold onto the string, you'd expect it to fall down. Okay? So in order to find the tension in the string, we have the sum of the forces equals ma, and the sum of the torques equals I alpha. The acceleration is not zero, therefore the torque, the forces don't add up to be zero, and the tension is not mg. So we have two expressions. And two things we don't know. We don't know the tension. We don't know the acceleration. We do know that alpha is related to the acceleration by A over R. Okay, So we can use these two constraints to get two equations, T minus mg equals ma. And the sum of the torques, it's easiest if you pick this as your axis. In which case, the sum of the torques is only the gravitational torque. It's going to rotate it counterclockwise. Equals I alpha. So the moment of inertia is that around the center of mass plus mr squared. Since we're rotating around an axis that's not the center of mass, we have to use the parallel axis theorem times alpha. And this will have a positive acceleration, angular acceleration, of A over R. And I've considered the tension being positive when it goes up. That means I expect the acceleration to be negative. And so I have to put a negative sign in here so that a negative acceleration is produced by positive torque. So we have two equations and two unknowns. We don't know T. We don't know A. But every other thing is either a parameter of the problem or something that we've already solved for. Okay, so once you have these two equations, it's a matter of algebra to find what T and A are. So parts C and D, I kind of graded together. 
um, for a total of eight points. And it went something like this. Um, properly recognizing that the sum of the torques equals I alpha and properly evaluating that was worth uh, three points. Sum of the forces equals mass times acceleration was worth one point. Alpha equals A over R was worth a point. And that left uh, three points, basically, for getting the correct answers. Finally, part E. Part E asks, how fast is the yo-yo spinning when it reaches the bottom of its string? There's a right answer, and there's uh, an answer that's not quite right, but I accept it anyways. So the idea is this. Um, here's the yo-yo before it spins down. Here's it when it gets to the end of the string. And here's it when it's on the bottom of the string just spinning. So if you know the acceleration from part D, you can calculate its linear velocity at this point and v, use V equals omega r to calculate omega. Um, it's perhaps easier, particularly if you didn't get part C and D correct, to use conservation of energy. And so taking this as a height of 0, we can say the potential energy here is mgl, because this string was length l. And there's no kinetic energy if it's released from rest. At this point right here, its final energy is entirely kinetic. Some of that is due to motion of the center of mass, linear motion, and some of it is due to rotation around the center of mass. And using this relationship here, we could write the final energy in terms of omega, set it equal to the initial energy, and solve for omega. Um, that works out to 12GL over 17R squared. OK, so that is the accepted way to do it. And that's the official accepted answer. You got one point for using conservation of energy, um, two points for recognizing properly the different terms for the initial and final energy, and then one point for solving for the answer. Okay, that's assuming you did conservation of energy. If you used um, the acceleration, I graded. I tried to grade similarly, but most people use conservation of energy. Um, some people use conservation of energy, but they went straight to this point where the yo-yo is spinning on the bottom and has no kinetic, has no uh, linear kinetic energy, and just said its entire gravitational potential energy turns into rotational kinetic energy. So I gave full credit for that, even though that's not actually what happens. Um, what happens is, as it falls down, just before it reaches the bottom, it's moving with some velocity and rotating with some velocity. When it gets to the bottom, the kinetic energy that's linear motion doesn't automatically get transferred to its rotational motion. Um, instead, in order to keep the thing 
from just falling to the floor, you have to yank up on it. And during that time, yo-yo is moving down. It's being pulled up. That does work on the system. It's negative work. It reduces the energy, and it stops this kinetic, this uh, linear motion. Okay, so um, I didn't penalize people for neglecting that, but uh, in reality, that can't be neglected. And you have to calculate the rotational velocity just before it gets to the end of the string, rather than when it's spinning at the very end. So um, if you have any issues with the grading, um, if you notice any abnormalities in how I added your score, if your score doesn't match what's online, or if you just want to go over the test, you can see me after class. Any questions right now? I know. So the centerpiece is an axle. If it were rotating around an axis like this, you treat that as a rod. If it's rotating around an axle like that, which it is, then if you look at it along that axis, what you see is a disk. Okay, so it just depends on the geometry of the rotation. This one was a disk. Any other questions? OK, um, so if you didn't get your test, you can pick it up after class. So we're going to talk about periodic motion today. Periodic motion is any motion that repeats. Yes, Adrian? OK. Number two. Oh, you're loading passengers on a private jet? Do you remember the uh, inertia sticks that I brought in, the red one and the blue one, and you twisted them to see which one is harder to twist? Okay, That's basically what we have. When the mass was further away from the center, it's harder for something to rotate. And in the case of the private jet, we're trying to prevent it from rotating by putting the mass, the passengers, as far from the center. And that means first on the aisles, or not on the aisles, but on the windows, and then away from the center away from the middle by putting them uh, the front and back. OK, so we've dealt with two classes of motion so far. The first is linear motion, or uh, let's say objects that were in free fall. We did lots of problems of objects that were in free fall or otherwise had constant acceleration. And we had some equations that we could use that related displacement, velocity, acceleration, position. Um, so we did that. That was the first three chapters of the book. Then we did circular motion. Circular motion, the acceleration is not constant, so we couldn't use those equations. We had things going in circles. and that's useful both for describing things like the moon going around the Earth, things literally moving in circles. And then, although we kind of treated it as two different things, also things rotating around their center of mass, so rotational motion. So those are two different classes of motion. The equations that we have for one, we can't use for the other. 
um, because the equations for one assume constant acceleration. The equations for the other assume an acceleration that keeps things going in circles. Now we have a third class of motion. And the reason we break our studies into these different classes is these are different types of motion that you see in the real world very frequently. Right, we have a lot of things that fall to the ground in free fall. A lot of things that we observe going in circles or rotating. There's also a lot of things that are observed to move periodically, okay, to, rotate, to uh, have some repetitive motion. Okay, so a simple example is this meter stick. It's basically acting like a pendulum right now. If I swing it, its motion goes back and forth, back and forth. It keeps going back and forth and repeating itself. So if we want to understand that motion, we can look at the properties of periodic motion. They're going to be different than free fall or rotational motion. But there are some useful relationships that we can write down, have equations for, and use to solve problems related to the motion. Okay, so sort of the canonical example of an object in periodic motion is a mass on a spring. Okay, and if you were to do an experiment in the lab with a mass on a spring, which you will, it's uh, experiment 11, you'll do that next week, you might have that mass attached via a spring to something that's stationary. And in equilibrium, that spring has some length. And we'll call the position of the mass x equals 0. So that's where the mass will be when you don't push on it, push or pull on it. Um, if you do push on it and compress that spring, what happens when you let go? It's going to shoot back. Right? So if we compress it, the spring pushes back with a force. When we let go, that accelerates the mass to the right until it gets to the equilibrium position. At that point, there's no longer a force exerted by the spring. That's what it means for it to be in equilibrium. And so if there's no force exerted by the spring, does it stop when it gets here? No. It no longer accelerates. But because it's been moving to the right, it keeps moving to the right. And so it overshoots the equilibrium position, goes past it, and in the process stretches out the spring. So when the string stretches out, stretches out, it pulls back. Okay, and the further it stretches out, the harder it pulls back. Eventually it will stop this and cause it to go back towards equilibrium, overshoot, and go back to this point. Chris? Yeah, that's, well, that's an example of a pendulum. And a pendulum is something that obeys simple harmonic motion. Um, and we have a bunch of those. I could have brought one in, but um, I didn't. Those demonstrate a couple things. They also demonstrate uh, conservation of energy and momentum in collisions. That's an example of something in periodic motion. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, the second one is yes. There's no forces acting on it here. But it's moving to the right. Yeah. And as a result, Newton's first law tells us that there's no net force on an object. And it's moving. It's going to keep moving. Right? So it's going to keep moving to the right. And once it passes equilibrium, the spring will pull back. Okay. So that's just the phenomenological description. Um, if we plotted what its position looked like as a function of time, it might do something like this. Right? Initially, it starts out 
call positive x being compressed, pushed to the left. So it starts off compressed, and then as it moves back, it reaches equilibrium at x equals 0. And now it's moving. Moving means the slope is not 0. So it keeps going, and it overshoots. And then slows down and eventually turns around at this point. So there's a maximum displacement in the forwards and backwards direction, which you can see is the same if the system is symmetric. And then it comes back. And this, this motion from here to here is what we call one cycle of the motion. And then it repeats. So going from here to here is exactly the same as going from here to here. So what are the terms we use to describe this? What's that? Mitchell? So amplitude. What's amplitude on this plot? The letter A. It's how far the object gets displaced. Okay. So that's the amplitude. Larger amplitude just means larger motion. Uh, what other period. terms? Period. What's period on this plot? It's, it's t. It's, it's the time it takes it. So period is it's a t because it stands for time. The time it takes it to go through one full cycle. So from here to here is one period. You could also define a cycle from here to here, or from here to here. The time it takes the motion to completely repeat itself. If we go from here to here, the object has gone from x equals 0 back to x equals 0. Is that one full period? Why not? What's different between the object here and the object here? Yeah, its direction is, is different. So one's going forward, one's going backwards. So the motion hasn't yet repeated itself until it comes back and is at the same position and going in the same direction. Okay, so t is the period. Any other parameter we might use to describe this? Okay, frequency is related to period. Um, frequency is how many times per second, or in an interval of time, the cycle repeats itself. So it's going to be given by 1 over the period. Yeah, Sam? Yeah, we'll see that. We'll see the mathematical description. There's one other term, which is, sorry? Mm, that's, sim that's the same thing as a period, when something's moving as a function of position instead of time. So we'll see that with waves. Um, I'll just tell you. It's the initial phase. So if you start at time 0, you could start with a positive amplitude, meaning we could start by compressing the spring. Or you could just as equally start by pulling the spring. And the difference is whether you start up here in the motion or whether you start down there. So your starting point is another thing that you could use. There's another parameter that you would need to know to describe this graph. Okay, so there's the three, three terms that describe this amplitude, period, and the starting point we call the initial phase. And we'll see why we call it that in a moment. Amplitude is what again? The, the, in simple terms, it's how big the motion is. Specifically, it's the maximum displacement of the oscillator. Phase is where you start. And it will be measured in terms of one full cycle. So 
if we call this zero phase, and we call this one full cycle, this would be half a cycle, quarter cycle. So we describe the starting point in terms of the number of cycles. And we'll see in a moment we can express that in terms of radians. You always end where you start after a full cycle. Yeah. Okay, so um, before we try to figure out exactly what these terms are, it's useful to actually go through a little math and have the mathematical framework to express them. So let's do that. Um, for our object that was being pushed down by a spring, the force on it, and anytime we have an object with forces on it, it's useful to draw a free body diagram. So maybe I should draw an object that looks like what I was dealing with. I had a glider. Right? It has a certain mass. And the force that I'm concerned with is that, that exerted by the spring, force of the spring. Yes, gravity pulls it down. There's a normal force pointing up. Um, but for the moment, I only care about one-dimensional motion horizontal, or, yeah, horizontally. So I'm only going to draw the horizontal forces here to keep it simple. Well, the force of a spring, did you cover this in chapter 11 while I was gone? Hooke's law? It's minus kx. The force exerted by a spring is minus kx. That's called Hooke's law. So what that means is, if an object is displaced to the left from equilibrium, and it's attached to a spring, that spring will push it back to the right. That's what the minus sign says. If the displacement is to the right, the force will be to the left. The force is always pulling it back towards equilibrium. That's what the minus sign is. The k tells us how hard the force is. Or in physical terms, it's how stiff the spring is. So the stiffer the spring, the harder it will pull back. Hence, the larger the value for k will be. So that's the only force acting in the horizontal direction. All right, we just got done doing equilibrium, where the force is always balanced. In this case, there is no balancing force. There's a net force acting in the minus x direction. And as a result, this thing will accelerate. Right? Newton's second law says if there's a net force, there must be an acceleration that equals f, or f equals ma. Okay? So if we relate this net force to ma, we get an expression that, in a second, we'll be able to solve. The next thing we have to do is notice that this A, this is acceleration. And acceleration can be described in terms of the displacement. Right? The acceleration is the second derivative of the displacement versus time curve. So if we make that substitution, if we write A equals the second derivative of x, we can get an expression that's written in terms of x. Okay, so putting those two things together, we get this. This is called a differential equation. There are entire classes dedicated to solving this, classes which are not prereqs for this course. So I won't attempt to solve it, 
but we can at least argue what the solution should look like. And in fact, what you generally do when you solve these things is you guess, which is what we'll do. You plug in your trial solution, and you see if it works. So that's what we're going to do. So what this says is um, our object should have a displacement as a function of time where the second derivative of that function is proportional to the function itself. Okay, so you have to go back to your calculus and your graph theory. See if you can recall a function whose second derivative is proportional to the function itself. Does anyone know of anything off the bat? Yeah, so sine, cosine. Sines and cosines are two solutions that, that work. Turns out exponentials also work. So we won't deal with the exponential form of the solution. We'll look at the sines and cosine forms just because they're a little more familiar to you. And what we can do is you can take either of these expressions and plug them in to this equation and see if they satisfy that equation. So let's do that. Uh, let me take the sine form. This is a completely general sine wave, or sine function. There's some amplitude times sine, where there's some initial phase, so some value for this argument at t equals 0, and some rate at which the sine oscillates. That's omega. So this can describe any sine wave. It can describe sine function like that, a sine function like this, a sine function like this, just by using different values of amplitude, frequency, and initial phase. OK, so let me plug that in to the left side. So if I have m times d squared dt squared of a sine omega t plus phi, that's equal to m times, so I'm going to take the first derivative. When I do that, the derivative of sine omega t is omega cosine omega t plus phi. So when I take the derivative once more, the a and the omega are constants in time, so they come out before the derivative. And then I have the derivative of cosine, minus sine. So I'm going to get a minus here. The omega comes out times sine omega t plus phi. That's the left side of this equation. The right side is just minus k times minus k times my original function. And if I plug in that original function, I get a sine omega t plus phi. Okay, so I have an equation. Yeah. Yeah, t t is the, the variable that I'm differentiating with respect to. Okay, so if this is a solution, then this equation must be right. Right. So let's see if this equation 
is right. We can cancel the sine omega t plus 5s from both sides. Uh, we can cancel the a's from both sides. And we can cancel the minus signs. And that gives me a relationship that I'm going to write like, um, see, I'm going to divide both sides by the mass. And that's omega squared equals k over m. Or I'll write omega equals square root of k over m. If I had plugged in a times cosine omega t plus phi, I would get the same result. You can try that on your own if you want. You can do this on your own. You learn, you learn something doing it yourself. So if this is a solution, then this must be true. Okay. So what this is saying is we assumed that the object was moving with some amplitude, some This is going to be what we call a frequency, an angular frequency, some rate. Right? The, the larger omega is, the smaller a time it takes for this argument to cycle through 2 pi. So the smaller the period would be, the faster the motion would repeat. Okay, so omega tells us about how fast this thing is cycling. It tells us about its period in some initial phase. And what we find out is, regardless of what the amplitude and initial phase are, this can be a solution, but it can only be a solution if omega equals this. Okay, so we can have periodic motion, but if we know the strength of the spring and we know the mass of the object it's pushing around, there's only one solution for how fast it cycles back and forth. So that omega is the key to solving problems in chapter 13. More generally, it's the key to solving problems that involve simple harmonic motion. Kritika? There is a minus sign on both sides when I differentiate this. Oh, yeah. Well, it can be plus or minus. We're, by convention, always going to treat it as positive. Okay, well, we'll see why in a second. Um, you could call it negative, but you could accomplish the same thing by having a 180 degree phase shift here. Okay, so there's some mathematical reasons why you can get the same solutions, always calling this positive. But for simplicity, we'll always treat it as a positive number. I guess it's the easiest way to say that. OK, so the key thing about this omega, this is a really important parameter because it depends on two different things. Or we can relate it to two different things. We can relate it to the spring that is pushing our mass around, meaning as soon as you have the problem, if you know that there's a spring attached to a mass, you can find what omega is. If you know omega, you can find what its displacement versus time trajectory, what its trajectory is going to look like, okay? or vice versa. If you can observe how something is moving back and forth, that means you can observe omega and then calculate the properties of the, of the spring or the mass 
in the system. So omega relates these two things, the motion to the, the setup of the problem, or the setup of the experiment. I'm going to skip over the derivation before this and just say that there's lots of examples of things that obey simple harmonic motion. Um, pretty much anything that is in stable equilibrium that's displaced a little bit from equilibrium will return. It will return to its or original position and in the process it will overshoot it and will oscillate. So examples are the shock absorbers in your car, especially if they're old and worn out, you hit a bump, your car is going to shake right now. The shocks also have, um, have um, damping in them that causes that motion to decay and settle out. We'll talk about damped harmonic motion in, in a few minutes. A pendulum, so we saw that when I took the meter stick and I let it swing back and forth. Uh, molecular excitations. So if you're studying chemistry or you're looking at lasers and you have a molecule, maybe carbon dioxide, or maybe you're concerned about global warming, you probably start by treating the molecule as a collection of masses connected by springs. Those springs are the bonds. They shake at certain frequencies because there are certain masses involved and there are certain spring constants. The frequencies at which they shake at turn out to be the frequencies of light that they absorb. Turns out those are infrared. That causes the light, the heat that's going from the Earth back off into space to get absorbed by the carbon dioxide, reflected back down, causes global warming. Okay. Um, it also causes carbon dioxide to be a very good laser for machining. Um, and any of those applications start by treating the molecule as a simple harmonic oscillator and using these basic equations that we're driving here. Satellite motion. Satellites basically are moving in ellipses around the Earth. But if they're perturbed from their standard orbit, they'll oscillate around their, uh, their nominal location in simple harmonic motion. Guitar string, drum heads, piano strings, anything that basically makes a sound, which we'll study in chapter 15 and 16, will obey simple harmonic motion. So we're going to see this stuff again. All right, so here are the parameters that we can use to describe the motion. Some of these we already saw. Amplitude, period, and phase. Those three parameters are enough to completely describe the motion of an object that's oscillating in simple harmonic motion. Sometimes, though, there are more convenient ways to express the motion. For example, the period, rather than saying it takes this meter stick 0.33 seconds to go through one full oscillation, it might be easier to say it oscillates three times per second. Right? So sometimes it's easier to talk not about the period, but the frequency, one over the period. So little f, we call the frequency. 
If period is measured in seconds or in units of time, then frequency is going to be measured in 1 over units of time. We call that 1 over a second, we call it hertz. And we can check from our solution how omega relates to the period. Our solution will repeat when the argument of the sine function increases by how much? Austin? 2 pi. Right. So, let's see if we have argument of the sine function increasing by 2 pi, then we'll call that time one period. So if time increases by one period, the argument increases by 2 pi. All right, so it doesn't matter what the initial phase is. The omega t terms cancel, and I have omega times the period equals 2 pi or omega is 2 pi over the period. Okay, So if we can find omega, then we know what the period of the motion will be. It's given by 2 pi. Well, So the period is 2 pi over omega. And since we call the frequency the inverse of the period, we can also write this as 2 pi times f. We've seen omega before. What was omega? What was omega last week? Angular velocity. Turns out it's closely related to the omega we have here. In fact, they have the same units. We're going to call omega's units, when we do it in SI units, radians per second. So the per second part makes sense because it's something over a time. Radians is dimensionless, but we have 2 pi here. Generally, when we have numbers that have pi in it, their units are radians. Um, so let's see how this relates to um, the angular velocity. So here's consider a ball or a mass or a point or whatever that is moving around in a circle. Okay, if theta is the angle that that makes with respect to the x-axis, omega is how fast that angle changes. At least for rotational motion it is. And what we're going to do is we're going to start with simple harmonic motion. Here's an object going up and down in simple harmonic motion. And so if we plot its position, it's tracing out this sine wave. And if we change our viewpoint, we could also consider that an object going around in the edge of a circle. Think about that as like a point on the rim of a wheel rotating at angular velocity omega. If you view that wheel, rim on, what you'd see is the position of that point would be going up and down with angular frequency omega. Okay, So the two are very closely related. 
Okay, so here's some graphs. Um, three graphs of sine waves that have different amplitudes. The only thing that's different between these three is A, their amplitude. Here's three graphs. Uh, I cover that up. What's different between those three graphs? Uh, what's different about the peak? The height of the peaks? Looking at these three graphs, yeah, the position of the peaks, or the, the time it takes them to cycle, the period. These have different periods. They have the same amplitude and the same phase, because they have the same starting point. These three graphs have the same amplitude. All of them are oscillating between plus A and minus A. They all have the same period. The time it takes them to repeat is the same. But they start at different points. So they have different values for the initial phase. OK, so a couple quick words on We've talked about displacement and found a solution for the displacement of an object in simple harmonic motion. Let me just point out what the velocity and acceleration are going to be, um, and then we'll do some examples. So if this is the displacement, finding the velocity from displacement is just a matter of taking the derivative with respect to time. So the derivative of this is this. And if this is the velocity, we can find the acceleration by taking the derivative again. And you'll notice that the maximum the velocity can be is going to be when this sine term equals 1. Right? Or because there's a minus sign there, it would actually be minus 1. But um, if this oscillating term is at its maximum value, the maximum velocity is omega times a. Okay, well, a was the maximum displacement. Omega a, then, is the maximum velocity. Omega squared a is the maximum acceleration, right? because this cosine term can only be between plus and minus 1. Okay, so if you know the displacement versus time, you can find the velocity versus time, the maximum velocity, the acceleration, the maximum acceleration. You'll do that in lab next week. So let me point out that if we start with, say, a sine wave, we take the derivative, we get a cosine wave. Well, a sine and a cosine are the same. They're just shifted by 90 degrees. What that means is when the displacement is a maximum, the velocity will be a minimum. It will be 0. And when the displacement is 0, the velocity will be a maximum. And we can understand that by thinking about the energy. If our oscillator has a total amount of energy, that's this tan bar, and it's the same at all points during its oscillation, it's not losing energy, then if it initially is all in potential energy, because we, say, compress our spring, or in the case of a pendulum, we raise the center of mass by swinging it out, then we've got some potential energy at its maximum displacement. 
And as it moves towards equilibrium, that potential energy gets converted to kinetic because it's moving. At equilibrium, all of its energy is kinetic, meaning its velocity is the greatest. And then as it moves away from equilibrium, it eventually stops, stops moving and comes back. It has to if it's periodic. If it stops, there's no kinetic energy, and it's all potential energy again. There's a few different ways to think about what's going on in the system, but probably most useful to do a problem. So let's do a problem. A spring scale reads from 0 to 2 kilograms and is 20 centimeters long. This might be the kind of thing you use to measure the mass of your produce right, at the grocery store. So let's say we hang a bag on here and put an apple in it. And what we notice is, uh, let's say we're in a hurry and we don't let this thing come to rest. Instead, we just stick the apple on, it's bouncing. And we don't want to wait for it to stop bouncing. So we just notice that it's oscillating at 2.5 hertz. So in one second, it goes through 2.5 full cycles. Then from this information, we can figure out how far the scale will stretch when it's done bouncing, where its equilibrium position will be. Okay, and this is a typical type of problem we'd face when dealing with periodic motion. So first, let's think about what all this information tells us. Um, its length and its range are going to tell us how strong the spring is. It's going to take 2 kilograms of mass to stretch this out by 20 centimeters. Mathematically, what parameter is that that, that tells us? K. That's going to be the K from Hooke's law. How much force it takes. Well, it's not quite 20 because, um, well, we'll work out the numbers in a minute. Just leave it at that. Uh, two and a half hertz. That can tell us, I guess I erased it. The frequency, omega. That's the key to solving these problems is to find omega. So we can do that from the two and a half hertz. Once we know omega, we can relate it to k to find m. Once we know m, we know where the, where, what the scale should read. Okay, so let's see. Uh, we want to know omega. By definition, it's 2 pi over the period, and we, we know that. Right? The period is 2 and a half hertz. Okay, so we can plug that in and, and figure out what omega is. I'm not going to do that yet. I'll do that at the end. Now we want to know how far the scale stretches when the apple comes to rest. Well, we know that omega is square root of k over m. Right? And these are the two definitions for omega that allow you to go from properties of the motion to properties of the forces acting on it. So I can rewrite that as m equals k omega squared. And if I just 
square both sides, multiply both sides by m, and what, divide by omega squared? There we go, m equals k over omega squared. So I'm going to want to figure out the mass of the apple. If I know that, it's pretty easy to figure out how far it will stretch the spring. If it's a 2 kilogram apple, it will stretch the spring 20 centimeters. If it's a 0 kilogram apple, it won't stretch it at all. If it's 1, it will stretch it 10 centimeters. Right? So I want to find omega. I need to know k to do that. So I can consider the scale stretched out all the way. So stretched out 20 centimeters from equilibrium. And for the moment, I'm just going to call that d, so I don't need to plug in 20 centimeters every time I write write this in an expression. Um, that's what happens when I have the maximum mass of 2 kilograms hanging on this scale. Or Maybe I can write this more generally like this. mg pulls down, kx pulls up. I didn't include the minus sign here because I'm already drawing the force pointing up. Right, it's being pulled down, the force pulls up. That's the minus sign. It's been taken care of in my diagram, Austin. Um, for the 2.5 hertz, isn't that a frequency? That's a frequency. Yeah, did I write it? OK, that's, thank you. OK, so what I'm looking for is k. This is when the system's in equilibrium. Right? If I hang mass on it, and it pulls down, the spring pulls back, and they balance, the scale will just stay stretched out. And so I should have the sum of the forces equaling 0 in equilibrium. The sum of those forces is kx minus mg. So k is equal to mg over x. And now I can plug in my mass of 2 kilograms, my value for g, and my displacement of 0.2 meters. So 2 over 0.2 is 10. So this is going to be 98. Let me write it over here where you can see it. K has a numerical value of 98, and the units, kilogram, meter per second squared per meter, we usually write that as a newton per meter. So it takes 98 newtons to stretch this scale out by one meter. 
what that's saying. Okay, so I have k. I can now find the mass because I know omega and I know k. Okay, so omega I can write as 2 pi times f. Two pi radians times two point five hertz, which is per second. I have to bring out my calculator here to get a number on that. Fifteen point seven. radians per second. Omega is usually expressed in radians per second. So I can plug that in for omega. I can plug in my value for k over here and get that n equals k over omega squared. Zero point four. Now let me figure out the units. A newton is a kilogram meter per second squared. Dividing that by a meter. And then in the denominator, I have radian squared per second squared. So this second squared cancels that second squared. This meter cancels that meter. Radians is dimensionless. And that leaves me with a mass. So 400 grams is the mass of my apple. And now I can answer the question, how far does the scale stretch when the apple comes to rest? I've done all the physics now. Now I just have to relate my expression back to what I'm being asked. So I know that the scale is linear and stretches from, well, I know k. So I can go back to this relationship right here. kx minus mg equals 0. This time, instead of plugging in a 2 kilogram mass and a maximum displacement, I'll plug in a 0.4 kilogram mass and solve for the displacement. Okay, so 9.8 over 98 is 0.1. That would be, yeah. Well, let me just quote the result here. That's going to be 0.04 meters, or 4 centimeters.
Sam? Well, what we're interested here is not the displacement when it's oscillating anymore, but once it comes to rest. So assuming that oscillation eventually damps out. So no, we can't use that. Okay, we did use that in a sense to relate the mass, the spring constant, and omega. Okay, that, that form gave us these relationships that we used, but we actually don't, aren't asked anything about the motion during the time that it's oscillating. We care about where it ends up. Okay, so you could ask, be asked a very similar question where you're told the reading on the scale and you're asked how fast it vibrates. Um, let's take a look. Sometimes it's fun to do physical experiments. Sometimes it's easier to do them virtually. Um, okay, so let's look at these different springs. They are different stiffnesses. We can hang a mass, watch it oscillate. Hanging a larger mass, it's going to oscillate more slowly. Right? Its frequency, as the mass goes up, the frequency of oscillation decreases. We can see that here. Maybe more clearly if I use this, yeah, rip that off. If I use a much smaller mass, you can see it oscillates much faster. Okay, so let's do one more problem very common um, example of simple harmonic motion is the pendulum. So a pendulum is a form of rotational motion. You have a string tied to a point up there in some mass at the end. And when displaced from the vertical, that mass will swing back and forth. So let's see if we can figure out how fast it swings back and forth, what its period will be. We know that pendulums are used to tell time. Right? You have clocks with pendulum that swing back and forth. And the reason is, for a given mass, there will be a particular period of oscillation. So it's a way to count time. So since we have an angle that we're measuring that goes back and forth, we should think about rotational motion. And let's say torque equals I alpha. Okay, so the torque on this pendulum comes from this force NG pointing down. And the, the lever arm is this distance. For rotation about here, it's this distance. And that distance is given by L sine theta. Okay, so the value of the torque is MGL sine theta. And for a positive displacement, that produces a torque that's into the page. So I'll call that negative. So minus MGL sine theta. So Newton's second law says that torque should equal I alpha.
And we'll use the relationship that alpha is the second derivative of theta with respect to time. This is exactly the same argument we did for the mass in the spring, except it's in rotational coordinates instead of linear coordinates. And if we let sine theta, if we approximate that with theta, okay, for small angles, the sine of an angle, when measured in radians, is approximately the same as the angle itself. So we can make that approximation for small displacements from equilibrium. Then we have an equation with theta on the left and the second derivative of theta on the right. We already solved the problem where we had a parameter on the left and its second derivative on the right. If we solve this for theta, it looks like this. We can compare that to the expression we had for a mass on a spring. Right? And if we see that we're measuring theta instead of x, then this term in parentheses has got to be omega squared. So just by comparing this to the solution I already have, we can find the angular frequency of a pendulum square root of mgl over i. So omega is square root of mgl over i. And for a simple pendulum, this is not what we call a simple pendulum. We call this a physical pendulum. Its mass is distributed over the whole pendulum. A simple pendulum is more like this, where to good approximation, all of the mass is located at the end. If that's the case, the moment of inertia, what's the moment of inertia of a point mass <coughs> rotating around a point here, a distance L away? What's the moment of inertia for a point mass rotating around an axis a distance L away? Does anyone remember? ML squared. So if we plug in I equals ML squared, M's cancel, one of the L's cancel, and omega is square root of G over L. Or we could find the period 2 pi over omega is 2 pi square root of L over G. This says that if the acceleration due to gravity is constant, the period depends only on the length of the pendulum. So you build your pendulum to have a certain length. Maybe the length such that its period is one second. You can use it to keep time. It won't work if you ship that pendulum off to Mars or to the moon. But as long as it's operating someplace where the acceleration due to gravity is the value that it was designed at, the period will always be determined just by the length. OK, so let's see this. Um, here's three pendula, right? two that have different amounts of mass but the same length, and one that has the same mass as this but a different length. So first, let's look at a single pendulum swinging back and forth. One, the period is about maybe a little less than a second. Uh, this is 40 centimeter long. This is 10 centimeters long. How fast should the period of this be relative to this? Its length is a quarter, that of the long one. So we take the square root, its period should be half. Okay, so it should oscillate twice as fast. Let's see if that's the case. 
Okay, so you can sort of see that. Now, our expression there says the period should not depend on mass, which might be a little surprising. Maybe, maybe not. So let's take these two pendula. They have different masses. And let me start them at the same time. And we'll watch them swing back and forth. You can see they're staying in phase. Right? So the period does not depend on the mass. And you can understand that. If I glue these together, so if independently they have the same period, let's say I have the same mass on both of them. So I take this 50 gram mass and I put it down here. So that these are the same. Of course their periods are going to be the same if they're identical. If I now glue them together, their mass is doubled, but they should still swing independently. I mean, they should still swing the same as if they were separate. And therefore, having twice the mass doesn't affect the period. Okay, so it doesn't matter what the mass is. It's a property of a pendulum that its period depends on just the length and the acceleration due to gravity, which for things operating on the surface of the Earth is basically a constant. I say basically, uh, quick, quick comment. Um, the oil industry I mentioned before explores for oil by measuring the local gravitational field. They use pendula. Something very similar to this, more precision, more of a precision instrument, but they measure the period of things oscillating back and forth. By observing changes in that period, if they know the length of the pendulum is the same, they can, uh, they can relate that then to changes in the local value of g, acceleration due to gravity. And they plot out in contour plots the local value of g and look for oil. And this is a particular contour plot of the local value of g for just off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And you see these rings. Right? That's not what an oil field would look like. Um, in fact, it wasn't clear what that was. So they drilled. And they drilled down. And what they found was that um, at a certain depth, all the material they found was, uh, was fused together. So they saw this fused quartz. And it was at a depth that corresponded to 65 million years. Right? So the deeper you go, the uh, older that sediment is. So 65 million years ago, what happened? Yeah, the dinosaurs died, as did 85%, uh, 65% of all species that were on the Earth. So one of the leading theories is that there was a, an asteroid that hit the Earth. So if we go back. When we look at that, that is a crater. That is a crater that's buried under 65 million years worth of accumulation and sediment. So the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, as evidenced by this, hit in Mexico and sent up debris that got caught in the upper atmosphere and blocked out the sun and killed 65% of the species. And it was proved using pendula. OK, so um, we'll leave it at that. And uh, we'll start on chapter 14 on Monday.